We're not crazy. The system is. Tune in to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Wednesdays, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on Pacifica Affiliate, WXOJLPFM 103.3, Valley Free Radio. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Streaming live, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us on Madness Radio. For more information about the co-producers of Madness Radio, check out freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. Today, my guest is um, Dr. Pat Bracken, who is a Irish psychiatrist with the West Cork Mental Health Service, and he also holds a doctorate in philosophy. Uh, Pat is the author with psychiatrist Phil Thomas, of the book Post-Psychiatry, Mental Health in a Postmodern World. And he talks with us about the problems with psychiatry worldwide, including the ways in which the diagnosis and treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, can cause more problems than it solves, especially in developing countries. Pat um, has worked in Africa, in Uganda, and other countries. My name is Pat Bracken. I'm an Irish psychiatrist uh, with pretensions to being a philosopher as well. (laughs) Um, Currently I do two jobs. Uh, I am clinical director of a mental health service in Ireland, a place called West Cork, right down in the south west corner of the country. But I also have an academic post in the UK in the University of Central Lancashire and that's in a new institute uh, called the Institute for Philosophy, Diversity, and Mental Health. And you're the author of a book called Post-Psychiatry, is that right? With my colleague, uh, Professor Phil Thomas. We've worked together over the last 10 years in writing projects and also collaborated on um, a number of other projects. Uh, But yes, we've brought out a book called Post-Psychiatry about two years ago. So when did you begin to start having an alternative or a different um, perspective on the profession that you're a part of? How, or when did that really begin? I think when I was still in school. Um, I was attracted to work in the field of mental health even when I was still in school because I just liked people who were different, and who thought differently. Um, and my choice at the end of school was either to go to art school Uh, I was quite interested in art and uh, painting and that, but I wasn't really any good at it, even though I loved it, and I loved art history. Um, Or else somewhere into into the world of working with people who were were in the territory of mental illness or craziness. And I made a choice. I did well at the end of school, and I got enough kind of academic credits to go into medical school, and I... I decided to to do that as a route. So I I had the decision to be a psychiatrist even before I entered medical school. Um, But I always knew that the mainstream wasn't going to be um, a place that I would sit easily with. And I think um, this was compounded by the fact that when I started to learn psychiatry, when I started to train psychiatrists, in psychiatry after my basic medical training, I also started to do philosophy on a serious basis. I started a night course in philosophy in the local university. And philosophy is about questioning. 
that's what it's about. It's always been just about asking questions, finding, you know, it's not about necessarily building up, stacking up answers. It's constantly interrogating what we take for granted. And I became particularly interested in a French philosopher and historian, uh, Michel Foucault. So I was reading Foucault and his kind of critical history of psychiatry. At the same time, I was learning to be a psychiatrist. And that was an interesting thing because it meant that I learned psychiatry from the outside. I never incorporated the fundamental concepts of it because part of my brain was systematically questioning them at the very time that I was learning them. It's hard to explain that, but it, you know, it's like I, I didn't learn psychiatry from... I never sat inside that. My head was never inside the theories of psychiatry. I learnt it, and I knew all about it, and I was did fairly well academically, but um, it was never my way of looking at the world. So from this kind of outside, inside perspective, what was what did psychiatry look like? Uh, it, it looked pretty thin, to be honest. Um, it, it, uh, what, what became apparent, I think, was that there was a kind of a pseudoscience going on around diagnosis, around biology, uh, around a few other things that was somehow quite separate from the practice. The practice of psychiatry ultimately have it, has its origins in institutions, in power, in controlling people, uh, in sedating people and, and uh, making plans about people. And there's a whole history to that. The science kind of stuff goes on in the background and doesn't actually really connect. And I think you can see that nowadays, for example, in um, it's there as a kind of the science is there as the kind of thing that psychiatrists refer to to give them kind of credence, to give the credibility to the to the clinical practice. But in fact, the science doesn't really have a whole lot of impact on the clinical practice. You know, what drugs you use for someone who's crazy. There's a kind of stuff around whether this is schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or schizoaffective disorder. But in the end, most people get some kind of combination of tranquilizers and the diagnostic stuff doesn't really, when you look at it, guide practice in that. For all the talk of DSM and all the rest of it, the reality is that most people end up on some goddamn cocktail of drugs of one sort or another. Because the diagnostic stuff, for all its the research and documentation and articles written about it, doesn't actually kind of guide what's going on in, in, in clinical practice. And all the stuff about brain scanning, for example... You know, I've seen, I don't know how many psychiatrists come out and put up scans, big pet, colorful PET scans, and talk about this being, you know, schizophrenia going on in the temporal lobe or whatever, very convincingly. But if that was the case, why aren't we using PET scans and CAT scans in clinical practice? You don't diagnose schizophrenia by doing a CAT scan or a PET scan and saying, we've got the diagnosis, doc, because we've got the the right scan, you know, um, it's there as a kind of a, a, a pseudoscience that gives kind of credibility that this is a legitimate medical enterprise. But it doesn't really kind of, you know, inform clinical practice and what happens to people in day-to-day in, in -day situations. And I think I was aware of that from this kind of 
exposure to critical ideas way back, I think I became very aware of this and the contradictions within psychiatry. So if this kind of pseudoscience um, that goes on in the background doesn't really inform clinical practice, what is it that motivates the practices that do happen? What is it that's going on there? I think it's about that, that ultimately it, it, it's something to do with power. It's something to do with ultimately something to do with control, I think, even when it's not kind of hands-on compulsory detention, etc. There is something about um, the practice of psychiatry which is about uh, controlling our social discourse around distress. Um, and, and that's quite a powerful position to be in. You know, you be you 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 your your credibility. Uh, you know, your your standing, your social standing, is is on the basis that you have some kind of expertise in the territory of distress. And you say distress. Can you say why you use that word other than other other terms? Um, the terminology of mental health is is confused and not not confused, but it's it's full of contradictions. And when you start to use a term like mental illness. You've already entered into a particular way of framing our problems uh, with distress or madness or states of alienation. So I've taken in recent times, I, I don't want to start from the point of framing it as illness. So I, I try to hold my discussions about uh, what's going on in this field to terms like madness, to distress, to states of alienation. Um, sometimes one has to move into the world of mental illness just to communicate, and you have to use that language in certain situations. But um, I, I think I'm, I'm using it just because it's it's uh, to me there isn't a settled language that it, that that we can agree on. And what are some examples just of things that you've seen of um, psychiatry expressing itself in terms of this control and and uh... in the last couple of hundred years? Because Western societies have become complex and complicated and on a large scale, biggest scale we've ever seen populations on the planet, um, we, we've, we've, we've emerged with systems of administration, you know, on, and, and, uh, and that's to do with how we organize our roads and our houses and our buildings and all the rest of it, but it's also how we organize ourselves, our relationships and our um, uh, states of well-being and not well-being and, 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 and whatnot. Um, and I think uh, as, as part of that, there's always people going to be moving in to um, uh, have some power over other people through that and and I think that's something that we can't continually have to fight against if we're not going to allow it to happen and I think that's happened classically in the field of mental health whereby you have people have become marginalized have become um, dehumanized historically uh, um, and administered to uh, by various kind of professionals of one sort or another and psychiatry as a profession fought for the power to control that group of people in the 19th century. In the 20th century, it's become a little bit more sophisticated and its mechanisms of control and, and that are no longer in the asylums. 
but through all sorts of other things. But they're still experts and they're still patients. They're still the people who have the knowledge and the people who receive the administrations. Um, so I think that that happens all the time. One area I, I've worked in um, is is uh, the, the, what, what's called in the UK and now in Ireland as well, and to some extent in the United States, uh, the idea of home treatment as an alternative to hospitalization. Um, in the United States, this would be associated with the kind of packed model that came out of, of Wisconsin and and, uh, and that. Um, and there's some very good ideas in that, you know, about trying to keep people out of institutions, trying to look after people in their own homes or close to their own homes. And this caught on in the UK in the early 90s, and I was particularly attracted to this and worked in Birmingham and subsequently in Bradford in terms of setting up such teams with the objective of keeping people out of the hospital. Because we believed that entry into hospital was toxic to people. It was a bad experience if you entered in there. And for people who maybe not know why it's toxic, you can just say a little bit about why you see it that way? Well, I think there are, there are. I mean, you, you go back to the work of someone like uh, Goffman and uh, his talk about institutions and how there are rituals in institutions that position patients in certain ways, in a very disempowering way. When you're admitted into a hospital, you give up some of your freedom, basically. You give up some of your uh, responsibility for yourself. You, you kind of hand that over and, in a kind of pact with the people who are looking after you, you, you say, right, I'll do what I'm told, but you get me better. That's the kind of, in a, in a medical hospital, that's what you do. You kind of adopt a patient role and people administer to you. In, in a psychiatric hospital, you, you enter into that, but there's, there's very little coming back, you know, um, and you, you, it, it can be that uh, you, you hand over a certain amount of yourself, I think, uh, when you enter into a psychiatric unit and you are administered to there. Um, and I think for a lot of people that can be quite oppressive. Uh, not everyone, but, but, but for a lot of people find the experience of being admitted, told what to do, when to go to bed, take these tablets, get up, get down, um, don't do this, do, you know, people find that, that, that oppressive. The other thing is that when you set up any institution where you've got one group of people who are in a dominant role over another group of people, you open that up to abuses. And there's a whole history of abuse of people in in mental hospitals around the world, you know, to a larger or lesser degree. But it's any kind of institutional setting in which people are, quote, administered to is, is a, you know, unless you work very hard at it, it's a kind of recipe that, that for, for people being abused. So there's, there's, there's lots of good reasons, I think, why hospital admission for, for people with mental health problems is by and large something that you should struggle against. And I think that's that's actually accepted by most people now. And there's a lot of movements around the world. WHO, for example, will, will fully support this about community treatment of people versus institutional treatment of people. So we were doing this in the early 90s. Um, we set up a team in, in Bradford uh, in the UK and and myself and the other people who set it up said, right, this is an opportunity to do something different, not just to move psychiatry out of the hospital into the community, but to fundamentally interrogate what we do with people. 
and we used it as an opportunity to um, try and democratize the relationship between ourselves and patients, i.e. you have to knock on someone's door to get into their house, whereas when the hospital, they're in a position of of powerlessness in many ways. So, so we, we, we emphasize those aspects of home treatment. But what's happened more recently, uh, and this is where it comes back to the kind of power and the control and the discourse and that what I've what I've seen and heard from people is that home treatment's becoming a, a kind of mechanism whereby people get out quickly and make a diagnosis and it becomes a kind of conduit for getting psychiatric drugs into people. And so that that kind of democratic element of home treatment, of community treatment, is being lost by something within psychiatry, some powerful discourse within psychiatry asserting itself. So when, I, when, when you ask, I'm just a long way of answering your question about how power and, and that gets manifest. This is one recent example. I've just been speaking to someone from a particular city in the UK who was telling me about the home treatment team there and what it, what it does. And it's like 100 miles away from what we were trying to do. So I think um, power kind of manifests itself in many different ways and I think that's one way in which uh, you know a, a particular powerful element in psychiatry operates and you were talking before about your travels in Africa and kinds of things that you learned from that you want to say something about that yeah well basically as I explained I, I, I trained in psychiatry did some philosophy and then just came to the point where the contradictions between trying to care for people and controlling people in psychiatry was too much and I left, I left the profession um, but I went to, to Africa to work for a small organization that was just setting up in the business of looking after people who were being tortured this sounded like something completely different to traditional psychiatry so I went there but it was, I, I started to become aware very quickly that I could do a lot of harm bringing a sort of so-called expertise diagnostic systems, treatment ideas, and philosophy of mind and healing that is associated with that into a, a context in a developing country. Uh, they'd just gone through war, their culture was in bits, their way of life was in bits, and so people are very vulnerable to outside experts coming in and telling them what to do, and I think in the long term that can be quite destructive. So I became very aware pretty quickly that I could do a lot of harm here, so I kind of Myself and the other people on the project spent a lot of time kind of withholding, if you like, uh, the, the discourse, for example, of post-traumatic stress disorder because that's associated with certain assumptions. Um, and what we tried to do was to promote uh, indigenous ways of, 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 of healing and moving on. Um, African societies are very strong. Uh, by and large, they've been through a hell of a lot of things over hundreds of years. They've countered all sorts of wars and problems and whatnot. And I think they have uh, a lot of wisdom and strength in their own communities to uh, to move on and find ways of moving forward. Um, and so we kind of started to think of our job more as assisting that process, assisting the the reestablishment of a way of life. And I became convinced after some time that uh, individuals in a situation like that of severe trauma and uh, where there's relatives being lost and all sorts of things are happening, 
But I, I think I started to learn that, that people can move on from those kind of traumas and, you know, disasters and whatnot. They do so to the extent that their way of life is, is, is brought back, a meaningful kind of, uh, a meaningful kind of way of a society functioning with its economy and etc. in place. And if that's reestablished, then I think people can generally move on. What are some examples that you saw of that happening? Um, well, there was there was one particular village that uh, I spent a lot of time in a fairly notori- notorious part of of Uganda in the Lu- what was called the Luero Triangle. Um, people who are familiar with the recent history of Uganda will know the the Luero Triangle. It became known as the Killing Fields of Uganda in the nineteen eighties. Okay. It's reckoned that about five hundred thousand people lost their lives there in a kind of scorched earth policy by the government, counterinsurgency operations where they cleared whole areas and that. And the, the village I, I, I went to and became quite close with the teachers there and the, the traditional healers and the, um, the local medical assistant, uh, over a period of time built up a kind of relationship with them and, and uh, got to understand, I think, something of the, the dynamics going on there. Um, and what, what was clear to me when you asked people what they wanted, what they wanted from people like myself, it wasn't therapy and it wasn't certainly wasn't psychiatry. Um, they wanted practical support. The kind of priorities were to rebuild the school, uh, to rebuild the road so that the market could get going, so that people could trade things, etc. But I also think they wanted someone to kind of witness a little bit of what went on. Um, and that was important. But you can't do the witnessing without the practical support. You you can't... Questions of trust are extremely important. Um, and so only after you establish a relationship where you're seen to be there and coming back and spending time with people um, and trying to help whatever way you can, which was limited for us because we were a small organisation, but we tried to put the efforts into doing things like I did the medical clinic with the medical assistant and helped out. And my partner is a gynecologist, did a clinic for women who'd been raped and things like that, just offering medical, basic medical interventions, testing, etc. And did that over a period of, of some years. And in that process, I think people uh, felt that we were kind of on their side and grew to trust us. And in that context would tell us about things that happened. Um, but I don't think there's any shortcut to that and I think that's the kind of western way is always to seek a kind of shortcut to trusting relationship uh, you know situation where people will talk about what's happened and that I became kind of kind of horrified at some of the interventions that I started to see happening where people who'd done a maybe six week counselling course or something would arrive and say right I'm going to counsel people who've been tortured or raped or something and completely kind of ignorant of local cultures and etiquette and uh, way of life and history, etc. Um, and so I became, you know, I started to, to, to write about this and uh, ultimately did a book on, on trauma and culture, um, very critical of the export of the whole discourse of PTSD and the various interventions that went with it. Can you say more about that? Because we, we tend to think of PTSD, the post-traumatic stress disorder, as one of the better kind of diagnoses because it's very sympathetic to what happened 
to a person, but you're suggesting that there's a real, a real um, negative side to that in a global context. Yeah, because I think it individualizes our suffering. Um, and I think there's a real problem with that. I think, um, and it, it uh, involved in the diagnosis of, of PTSD and the way in which that's framed is a kind of decontextualization of people's suffering and how they experience that. Um, it's, it's kind of, you know, you, you, the, the way PTSD works is like that you have a trauma that hits a person and then out the other side of that come certain symptoms and involved usually in the discourse of PTSD is some kind of uh, explanation of how that trauma works on the cognitive schemes of the person to produce those particular symptoms. And there's various techniques then used to kind of, uh, you know, go back and do cognitive processing of the trauma and the idea that it'll go away. And I think that's incredibly simplistic. Um, uh, I, I, I think it ignores the way in which our experience of suffering is wrapped up in our in our culture in many different ways. And how, how what I would focus upon is the question of meaning and how uh, suffering, uh, how trauma and horror and that can uh, sometimes work to destabilize our sense of meaningfulness in the world. Uh, and that uh, I think the PTSD model doesn't really kind of help us to engage with that. It, as I say, it's a very individualistic a uh, very decontextualized kind of approach to understanding what's happening. Um, I would, I would, uh, through my experience and 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 that, be uh, convinced of the importance of cultural and social and economic uh, and political context for for the whole process of 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 understanding how people respond to uh, various events in their lives. And how would that different understanding shape um, the best way to kind of help people? Well, for example, I, I, uh, I had communication with a psychologist from Mozambique who um, trained in, uh, in Europe and then went back to Mozambique. And he was doing what he had learned in Europe, which was to go home to, to his village or his town and to try to do individual counseling with people. What he found was that... Uh, uh, he was causing more problems for those people because they were getting focused on their own thoughts and on their own emotions as distinct from what was happening in their family and in their wider community. And after some time, he actually decided to stop doing that because he found that individual focusing of people on themselves and their own particular suffering and trauma was not helping them to, to move on in their lives. Um, and so I think the kind of approach that I would be advocating for is about you stand back and you, you say, right, how is this society, how is this village, how is this community going to move on? What can we do here to help them move on? And that might be things like helping, helping people to reestablish the rituals of their uh, ancestral uh, worship, etc., etc., that might have been destroyed in times of war, but is extremely important in actually re-establishing a sense of continuity and uh, a background context in which suffering can be be understood. 
So there are, there are practical things that can be done, but they don't always fit into our categories of mental health work and counselling or therapy, etc. Um, and I think certainly before you, anyone engages with communities that have suffered in, in times of war or natural disasters, there is a need to try and understand that community and not assume that what you've learned in a Western university or training centre is going to be of relevance to them. Um, so you mentioned ancestral um, rituals. What other kinds of things would be positive to support that process of healing from trauma? Well, I think uh, sometimes very practical things, like uh, I worked with an organization called uh, Save the Children Fund, which is an international, long-established organization that um, has been around the world helping people after wars for quite a long time. And they've got some very practical experience of, for example, reuniting families in the aftermath of of war. And, uh, and that's you know, often children get separated and end up in orphanages or institutions and, 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 and that, whereas their family have kind of gone back to their home place and maybe assumed that their child was dead. And Save the Children have good experience of re reuniting families in that context. But there's a practicality of that because, you know, for people who are ultimately extremely poor in Africa or Asia or somewhere, uh, you know, having a child disappear, a you know, nine-year-old, ten-year-old child disappear is terrible. But then it's not an unambiguous blessing for that child to reappear, you know, and need school fees and need looking after for a, for a family who are fairly desperately poor. So what, what I think, say, the children found over a period of time is that you couldn't just, it wasn't a good idea just to bring a f child back to a family and say, here you are, isn't it great? Aren't we wonderful? You actually have to do some pretty practical things to support that family and to follow up um, and to do some work to help that family reunite. Often that was quite practical stuff, but you, often it was emotional stuff as well about helping people to deal with that. Um, and, and I think that kind of work, that kind of practical work, is where it's at. That's where the action is. That's the real mental health stuff, you know, building schools, getting training programs for kids who maybe got wrapped up in wartime situations, etc. Uh, with child soldiers, for example, I did some work with, with them in West Africa in the issue of child soldiers. And um, very clear to me was that what these kids needed more than anything else was to, to get away from the focus on the military and their experiences in that and to start living a life that was more involved with their community. And that was often about training and having job opportunities and a clear path away economically and practically away from military life. And I was somewhat horrified to see a number of organizations doing very intensive counseling work with kids that seemed to hold them in the frame of that experience, that defined them as child soldiers and gave them an identity as a child's soldier and then did some kind of deprogramming regime with them for six months or 12 months or whatever, which I think is, is fraught with dangers. Um, just even the very concept of calling kids child soldiers and setting up a program for child soldiers, in that move in itself, you're separating out those kids and saying there's something really weird with them, they're really wonky with those guys and we've got to do something really special and, and that. And I think that, that, that mirrors in some ways 
what happens in Western psychiatry when we take episodes of distress in children and kind of put names and labels on it and start, oh, we've got to have a program for, for this, for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or Asperger's syndrome or whatever it is. And, and, and one can understand the motivation for that. And often it's a very good motivation and people are wanting to do something. But I think there's dangers to it. And I think that's one of the things that, that I would have learned over the years is that knowledge is dangerous and uh, the discourses we use are dangerous. And I think we should, we should uh, use them carefully and lightly. Do you think that your um, critique of PTSD also applies in Western societies where it's less, it, it is more of an individualistic focus, and there's less community kind of uh, sense of self? I, I, I think it, it's uh, the, the, the discourse of PTSD, even though it's problematic in the West, at least as a kind of cultural, that's where it comes from, if you know what I mean. That's particularly from the United States. I mean, PTSD emerged in that period after Vietnam and, and uh, was, was uh, included in the DSM after a, a fairly political campaign by veterans groups who, you know, there was good reasons to get PTSD on the, on the list because they wanted to, to get uh, support for people. Um, so it, in, in some ways, it, it's, it's more relevant. It works, if it works at all, it works in Western settings. But even there, I'm not sure that, uh, I'm not convinced that it's, it's always My experience helpful. would be um, that, that... I have seen people helped that by, very often by therapy for um, PTSD and some What happens in trauma after we go through some terrible area. event or other is we're, 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 it kind of can destabilize our sense of, of, of who we are and the world that we live in. It can destabilize our sense of meaning, of meaningfulness in the world. You know, a number of psychologists like uh, Ronnie Janoff Bullman has talked about this. Uh, she's an American psychologist. I think quite, you know, she talks about shattered assumptions. In other words, that all of us work in our day-to-day -day life with the sense that there's a kind of order to the world, you know, that it uh, hangs together in some way for good or bad that makes sense to us. But when something like you know, someone's murdered or you go through a very severe mugging or rape or some other terrible trauma happens to you, it can kind of have the effect of shattering those assumptions and destabilizing that sense of meaningfulness. Um, now, and, and, and I think, you know, that's the challenge to us is how you help someone to, to get that sense of meaningfulness back in their lives, how you get them to a point whereby they're not stuck in that kind of experience because the world doesn't make sense any longer after it. Now, again, I think while some work can be done on an individual basis with people um, and through a counselling and kind of psychological processing way, that there are things that can be done. But background meaningfulness ultimately is about our sense of connection one or one another and it's not necessarily something that we hold as as kind of individuals in our own heads it's something to do with our background culture and our orientation and what i found working with people in africa and in in asia was where that kind of sense 
of background uh, beliefs was very strong. It kind of held people. You know, it was it was sufficient to hold people through traumas of one sort or another. And particularly religion, I think, uh, holds people, or a political agenda. People go through enormous suffering if they believe it ha it's there for a, it, it has a meaning and a purpose to it. Um, I think a lot of religions are actually, if you think of Christianity or you think of Shiite Islam, for example, there's a very strong history of martyrdom and turning awful suffering into meaningful suffering. Um, I remember in Uganda, one man that I met who had been a, uh, a minister in a uh, uh, previous government, quite a prominent guy, who, after the regime changed, um, was arrested and detained for a period of about a week or ten days. And in that time, he was uh, stripped naked and humiliated and beaten quite badly. And... Uh, he told me that that was the best thing that had happened to him in his life. And I tried to make sense out of this. And he told me that before this happening, he was a Christian. He was kind of religious, but not, not didn't mean a whole lot to him. While he was going through this experience, he had a kind of profound sense of identification with Jesus and his suffering, you know, during the what's called the agony. And... Uh, this had a profound effect on this man to the point whereby when he, when, he, when he was released, he became a lot more active in his church and, and uh, his life became more deeply meaningful for him. And he actually said to me, he didn't come to consult me as a, as a patient, but I think just wanted to come and talk about what had happened to him. Um, and I've heard those kind of stories from very many people. Um, I'm not religious myself, but I do believe that what what kind of holds a culture together, gives a kind of strength, is some kind of set of beliefs that give people a sense of purpose in life. And I think in the Western world, we're kind of weak on that. You know, our, our contemporary modern uh, culture is fairly weak on that, that question of what holds the whole thing together. So I think we have a particular vulnerability in the West to uh, issues of shattered assumptions and trauma and that. Now, the answer to that is not more therapy, I think. The answer to that is something about community and how we as a community, as a society, work to reestablish a powerful sense of connection and purposefulness. And to me, that's something about opposing the the kind of superficial culture that is that is given to us by contemporary capitalism. I don't know how we do that, but it's a political agenda, not an individual therapy agenda, even though I would be very clear that I think there is a lot of very good therapeutic work happens with people. But I think we need to kind of think more socially and we need to think more communally in terms of addressing this issue. Do you want to talk about the Sharing Voices project? Yeah, um, Sharing Voices was uh, an interesting project in Bradford. That uh, The background to it is that basically uh, people have been aware for some time that ethnic minority communities in the UK get a particularly raw deal from psychiatry. More people from black communities and immigrant communities end up in 
detained in hospital or in secure uh, hospitals, they get more drugs, they get more ECT, etc. And uh, uh, the traditional response to that, within Britain at least, was to kind of look at the development of transcultural psychiatry. In other words, that psychiatry would become more sophisticated in dealing with these foreigners, you know, and learn about their cultures and so that it could intervene more effectively and appropriately. And there was a lot of good people involved in that, and but that was the tradition. So, you know, it was about building psychiatry up and its expertise up. The, the idea behind sharing voices was that that was kind of a, a false route, really, and that the, the real action was with community organizations who were campaigning against uh, bad psychiatric practice for individuals from their communities. And what we started to say was, well, right, you know, these communities are strong, they have their religions, they have their cultural way of life, they have their orientations towards families, etc., etc., Let's go back to them, to some of the answers, not build up psychiatry, but use what I would call a community development approach to mental health, to actually go back and say, right, there are people in the midst of this community who are getting becoming distressed, there are ha things happening that are, uh, people are getting dislocated out into the arms of psychiatry and getting labeled as being mentally ill with depression or schizophrenia or whatever it is. is th are there some things we can do within this community that actually uh, deals with the distress in the community rather than, you know, medicalizing it and handing over to that whole process. And uh, we got funding from, we made the case and argued it out with the health service and we managed to get funding for uh, three community development workers. Um, and uh, we set that up about uh, six, six years ago, I think now. And... Um, it's grown and, and, and emerged and become very effective. And it, there's all sorts of things going on within it. There's music, there's uh, writing, there's spirituality groups. There's just a sense of support for people and for people not becoming labeled as being mentally ill. So I, I think it's become very, very powerful uh, in Bradford and is now being used as a model for other developments in the UK. Uh, what are some examples of how that's helped specific people? Well, I think uh, there's a there's a research project on this done by the Sainsbury Centre in London, which is a big mental health institute, and they actually came and did a, a review of it. I haven't been involved with the project now for a number of years, but I have heard from individuals where, um, you know, just a bit of support around setting up a band, for example, um, and getting people involved in that and, and supporting that through times when people were a bit shaky um, has been very effective for the individuals within that. Uh, they've got uh, sporting activities. They've got all sorts of stuff going on. And through those activities, um, it's like people can still be distressed and still feel dislocated and still have those kind of problems, but they feel enough support through those activities, that they don't feel they have to go and consult a doctor and get a tablet or a drug or a therapy or a diagnosis. So it is about trying to, um, or for example, through some of the, the prayer groups that were set up, uh, particularly women's uh, in, the, in the Muslim community, Pakistani uh, women, 
um, were supported in getting a number of prayer groups going that supported women who were going through difficult periods in their lives. But they found a way through their faith to a sense of community with other women in those circumstances that that was enough support for them. And through that they could find a way forward without going into the psychiatric hospital or the clinic or whatever it was. Is there a danger, though, you mentioned traditional healers in uh, Uganda, but is there a danger that um, those alternatives to the mental health approach might themselves have oppressive qualities and be harmful in some ways, too? Well, absolutely. Healing is a powerful activity, and uh, um, uh, I wouldn't want to, to say the answer to mental health problems is to is to look to traditional healers. I've tried to indicate that for me the, the, the central issue in mental health is about hope uh, and finding paths whereby people can find hope in their lives again and move forward. And that can happen through all sorts of things. It can happen through healers of different sorts, whether they're doctors or traditional healers or whatever. It can happen through religion, through faith. It can happen through art, through creativity. It can happen through politics and community activism. There's a whole series of routes whereby hope can be regenerated and can, can come back into somebody's life. And I think that's where a community development approach comes in. It promotes all of those different activities and processes and paths. Um, traditional healing, I wouldn't like to give the idea that I'm kind of saying traditional healers are the answer to, to everything. Or even in Africa, that wouldn't be the case. And my experience of traditional healers in Africa was that they were a varied bunch. Certainly the group of people I met in around Kampala, some of them were charlatans. I have no question about that. But some of them were decent people who were doing, you know, uh, their best for people who consulted them and used kind of uh, a knowledge that was... was uh, historical in their in their tribe in their cultural group to to explain people's distress and that um, and I think that gave people a sense of continuity with the past and a sense of identity which in the midst of war which was those were the very things that were being attacked so I think the the healers were doing a number two things really they were providing remedies and help on a kind of surface level but they were also doing something about kind of rebuilding a community with its beliefs and its uh, gods and and whatnot um, but it, it's it's a complex process and uh, as I say I'm sure that, that there are uh, I have certainly come across people being exploited by traditional healers paying a lot of money for crap treatments and not being looked after very well but I've also seen people being treated very well and finding through that traditional healing a, a path forward uh, I could say the same about psychiatry, you know. I've seen bad doctors, you know, treating people very bad, and I've seen some good ones as well. And you mentioned with the sharing voices, getting people involved in uh, prayer groups or getting them reconnected with their families. Isn't there also a danger there that those can also be oppressive context as well? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, I wouldn't want to kind of give the idea that this... Uh, this work isn't without its own contradictions and difficulties. It is, of course. Um, and, and uh, for example, in, in uh, uh, you know, while on one, one level um, supporting um, uh, people through a kind of tradi traditional kind of faith 
mechanisms might be very important. On the other hand, uh, setting up groups, for example, are supporting people uh, who are gay uh, and struggling with their families and their beliefs and uh, their, uh, you know, negativity towards being gay was very important as well. So um, uh, uh, there isn't just one way of doing this. A community development approach, by definition, starts from where the, the, the individuals in that communities are at. And uh, just because we talk about the Pakistani community or the Irish community or the Russian community, these communities have all sorts of contradictions going on within them, you know, generational, uh, male-female, all sorts of uh, stuff going on there. What one is saying is that the answer to those contradictions and problems and the distress that comes from them isn't psychiatry and all of its stuff. Uh, it's about trying to find more creative ways of of dealing with that distress and 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 finding people's support for one another. Uh, it's 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 using a different kind of imagination. And you've written a book called Post Psychiatry with Phil Thomas. Do you want to tell us about that the book and what the sort of vision is for a way to to um, create a different kind of of psychiatry, a different kind of way of addressing distress? So psychiatry is a product of a particular cultural moment with a central focus upon technical solutions, technical framing of our problems and technical solutions to them. It doesn't forget about issues to do with values, meanings or relationships entirely, but they become very much a secondary preoccupation. I think if you look now at the, uh, the journals of psychiatry, uh, the major journals, 90% of the articles in them are to do with some kind of technology, you know, whether it's to do with our diagnostic categories and how we refine them, etc., etc., whether it's to do with the uh, understanding of the biology of distress or even the, the, the cognitive psychology of distress. These are all technical ways of, of understanding what's going on. And the solutions to it are technical solutions, whether they're drug treatments or ECT or even psychotherapies with all of their expertise and working out and, uh, you know, uh, investigation as to whether they work. That whole, the, the idea that progress is about getting this technology right is at the center of what contemporary psychiatry is about. As I say, issues to do with meanings, relationships, values are not ignored, but they're secondary. They're, they're marginalized. Post-psychiatry is the argument that we need to reverse that, uh, that we need to put values, meanings, relationships back in the center. Not back, because I'm not sure they ever were there, but we need to move to that, if you like. And if we talk about paradigm shift, that's the paradigm shift. We don't forget about the technology. But technology becomes secondary to a fundamental uh, framing of, of uh, uh, our holding of our distress and our madness in that world of meanings and relationships, values, etc. That that's the primary discourse. And out of that then comes issues to do with what technologies might be effective, what interventions might be effective, etc. So that's the, 
post-psychiatry, that's at the essence of what post-psychiatry is about, is trying to imagine what that would be. And then there's an agenda with that, because that has implications for what research we do. At the moment, most research in mental health is dominated by a technological paradigm. It's, most of it is some kind of biological research, but also there's psychological research in university laboratories, etc., etc. What a post-psychiatry world would be, it would put qualitative work, it would put user-defined um, uh, research right at the center. Those would be the primary issues. Getting, getting research that was uh, service users and, and others looking at what the central issues are, what helps people, what doesn't help people, issues to do with framing, etc. And then out of that might come more quantitative research projects. Uh, at the moment, qualitative research, user uh, uh, um, uh, user research is a marginal activity. It's there, but it's it's kept to the margins. It's an adjunct to this machine that is the technological program. Post psychiatry would reverse that. So that's in research, in training. Similarly, we'd start to move away from um, training, which was about teaching people. Uh, the technologies of mental health primarily and adding on a little bit about values and meanings and relationships after that. It would put those things at the centre of what we do at training. Um, and, and, and thirdly, in terms of service development, um, it has profound implications for that um, so that we start to imagine uh, that uh, we, you know, what we do with people is, is not about some kind of technical interventions in their lives, but it is about actually holding some kind of human space whereby our encounters with madness and distress and alienation, etc., is, is worked out in a meaningful environment, that people are treated with dignity and respect, that their experiences are valued, that they are listened to. So those would be the primary focus, and those would be the things we would judge our services on, whether we could do those things or not. And then the specific technologies of whether we give people drugs or, or therapies, etc., would emerge from that. Um, so I don't know whether that's kind of giving you an idea of what we're we're trying to imagine with this. And we're making this stuff up as we go along, you know, because... But I think it's already there, you see. I think post-psychiatry is just a name for something that's already happening. And, I mean, we can ditch the term post-psychiatry if, if other people have a better way of framing it. But this is the way to fill... I myself have tried to, to, to push things forward. Um, and I think it's a very exciting time to be involved in mental health because Foucault talks in one of his books about um, uh, the history of, of psychiatry is the history of a monologue of reason about unreason. I think with the emergence of the service user movement in different parts of the world in the past 20 years, for the first time ever, for the first time ever, certainly in Western history, we have the possibility for dialogue between people who experience states of madness and distress and their community and the helpers within that community. And that's an exciting prospect for me. And that's what brought me into mental health, go right back to the start of this interview. That brought me in to this world because I think it's fascinating and I think it's... Uh, um, it's it's a field that is I I would want to to encourage people to get involved and to 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 um, find a role 
some way or another in this field because I think it's important for us as a as a species almost to 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 deal with this issue of our states of madness and craziness and distress you know in a very very different way thanks a lot for joining us today <laughs> thank you You've been listening to an interview with Pat Bracken, who is an Irish psychiatrist with the West Cork Mental Health Service. Uh, he holds a, a doctorate in philosophy as well, and he's the author with psychiatrist Phil Thomas of the book Post-Psychiatry, Mental Health in a Postmodern World. been listening to madness radio voices and visions from outside mental health madness radio is broadcast every wednesday 6 to 7 p.m eastern standard time on pacifica affiliate wxojlpfm 103.3 valley free radio in northampton massachusetts for our live internet stream podcasting show archives and more visit madnessradio.net madness radio is co-produced by freedom center and the icarus project for more information, check out freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. For more mental health radio, listen to the news hour from mindfreedom.org, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, or you just want to share what's in your head, contact us at radio at madnessradio.net. 